Let's join together for prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've chosen to exalt your name and your word. And thank you that we do the same. Thank you that we're exalting your word here together this morning. And I pray that you would help us to have a great incentive to defend that word, to be instructed from it, and to instruct from it, because there's no substitute anywhere else. So we thank you for this now. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Titus chapter 1. If you'll start turning there, we're going to be reading in just a moment, verses 10 through 16. I once had a conversation with someone about whether or not doctrine was important. What is doctrine? We have doctrinal principles. You see them in the front of our hymn book. We sang about doctrine a little bit earlier. And this individual said that doctrine is unnecessary. Doctrine is one of those things that's well overrated. In fact, he said doctrine is something that separates Christians. The only thing that's really important is a common faith. Let me ask you a question. How do you have a faith without any doctrine? What is your faith then based on if there is no doctrine? And so obviously I didn't agree with this individual, didn't agree that doctrine is unimportant. It is very, very important. And I think the Apostle Paul would agree with that, and we'll see that in our Scripture. If you'll look now, first of all, back up a verse to verse 9 in Titus chapter 1, verse 9. The last characteristic of an overseer or an elder or a pastor that the Apostle Paul shared with Titus was in verse 9 where he said, last qualification now for the elder, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That's a very strong statement about the significance of doctrine. If Paul had intended to list any more qualifications in his list, and he could have, this is not an exhaustive list. Remember at the top of the list, an overseer must be above reproach. And then from there on, it's like as examples that will follow. And several of them are listed. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, it's not an identical list. Other examples come to mind from time to time. So if Paul had intended to list any more qualifications in his list of prerequisites for an overseer here, he couldn't get past this one. You'll notice he camped there. You'll notice that he goes on verse after verse after verse. He's listing things, bang, bang, bang. If you're a musician, it's staccato fashion, then all of a sudden he camps in this one particular area. He's deeply impressed by the urgency of this qualification and immediately gave the reason why this qualification was so important. That's why the word for introduces verse 10. As you look at that, that word for is all about because. This is why this is true. This is why the overseer or the pastor or the elder must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And so if we were to ask the question, why is this need present? It's because 
and we pick up with verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Remember, we're in the uh, island of Crete here. So it says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Sounds like our political campaign, doesn't it? That's kind of rhetoric that we're getting used to. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Sorry for that word unfit. You've heard enough of that word over the last number of months if you watch any TV at all. Uh, but that's, that's here present. So why is it that the overseers have to hold firmly to this word of God and need to instruct in sound doctrine and need to refute those who are not instructing? Why is it Well, we're told here very specifically that the false teachers are many and dangerous, and that's why. The false teachers are many and dangerous. So if you look at verse 10, you see that it's jumping out at us. There are many, and then it talks about them a little bit, but the threat is real. There are many who are insubordinate. That threat was a real one. It wasn't hypothetical. And there's more of an urgency to verse 5. And if you look back to verse 5, the Apostle Paul said to Titus, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. There's a lot that needed to be put into order. So the threat is a real one, not hypothetical. This was a big problem. The threat was present. It wasn't just a possibility. It was not impending. It was there at that particular time. And you'll notice also, if you look at that verse, the threat came from many individuals. The individuals are described in negative ways. The word insubordinate appears there. Most translations that I would consider good translations call it rebellious. There were many rebellious people, people rebelling against the truth. And in view here, constantly is God's word and the value of God's word. But there are those who are in rebellion against it. And those are the ones who are in view here. They're also described as empty talkers, also referred to in other translations as mere talkers or useless talkers. They may have been very good talkers, but they're no doubt convincing as well. People like this usually are, but it's empty talk. It's useless talk. And we're also told they don't live a faith. They talk about something religious. But if you look down to verse 16 that we read a moment ago, they profess to know God, 
but they deny him by their works. So they're not living of faith. They're just talking about something religious. They're in violation of verses like James 1.22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And we're told here, there are many who are insubordinate. Again, remember, that's rebellious against truth. They're empty, useless talkers. They're deceivers. Somebody put it this way. Men whose glib tongues exercise a fascination over the minds of their dupes and lead them astray. That is very convincing people who can convince, and they use the term their dupes, those who don't know what's false doctrine and true doctrine, those who are not well taught or not well learned. Verse 10, special mention is made of one group in particular, those, it says, of the circumcision party. The worst offenders in view here were probably Jewish, but they weren't the only ones. The legalists argued for circumcision and the keeping of the Jewish law as necessary for salvation. They were adding something to the gospel now. They were adding some works. The Christians were not bound by these rites of passage that the Jews had been bound by. Those issues should have been more than adequately wrapped up at the Council of Jerusalem. If you remember, that's recorded in Acts chapter 15, and that was 15 years earlier. Even then, there were some among the Pharisees who were trying to force the old Jewish ways on the new Christian converts. But you may recall back from Acts 15, it says there, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. That was some in the very early churches. They were arguing some of these doctrinal positions. But the council disagreed with that. And their decision was circulated among the churches. But for some, it was not easy for them to change their preconditioned mindsets. And not just the believers at that time. It says some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. There were others later who were not believers and who were trying to do their best to disrupt what was going on in the early church. There's a terrible indictment of them in verses 15 and 16 that we read a moment ago. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So here's the problem. It's a big problem. It's the reason why the overseers, elders, pastors needed to keep a firm grasp on the truth of God's word so that they knew what was going on. They could instruct properly and they could refute the the rebellers against the truth. They could do that properly as well. So what do you do when you've got false teachers running around? That's a very present threat. It says here they cannot be ignored. In fact, it says the false teachers must be silenced. That's in verse 11. Must is a strong word. We've seen it before in the Greek language. This is a necessity for the protection of the churches. This is why this is serious business for the Apostle Paul when he says to Titus, you've got to put in order, stay there, get these elders in place, get the right people in place, otherwise 
we've got these rebellion, rebellious people that are there against the truth. So it is a very serious problem at that particular time. It's not optional. The false teachers have got to be silenced. You can't ignore them and hope they'll go away. They've got to be silenced. And the word for silenced in the Greek language, epistomizing. It means literally to check or curb as with a bridle. You've got a bridle there with all of its parts named, if you're, if you're interested in that. But that's what it means. It's got to be bridled. It's got to be controlled. And it means more than that, too. It can mean to close the mouth by means of a muzzle or a gag. So this is, again, serious business. They need to be silenced, and that's what that word means. Bridled or muzzled. Now, obviously, this is figurative, but it emphasizes the need to end the false teaching. Don't allow it. Is doctrine important? Yes, it is important. So much so that those who rebel against the right kind of doctrine need to be silenced. Why must they be silenced? It tells us that they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain. There's motive here. Shameful gain. They're doing this for money. They're doing this because they found out it's profitable. You can get people to follow you and support you and encourage you financially. That's what they're doing here. So why must they be silenced? Whole families are now dupes. And what a pity it is for us who have the Word of God so clearly available to us. I would venture to say that if I asked you, how many of you have more than 10 Bibles in your home? There would be a whole lot of hands that would go up. And yet, very clearly and easily, we can become the dupes that we mentioned before. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 5 says, And constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. These are people who are not truthful, but they have found out that if they peddle something that looks like the truth, it can be very profitable for them. It can be a means of gain. They can make a lot of money by doing this. Listen as I read 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Now, we've heard that before, but notice the context. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. They've left good doctrine. They've rebelled against truth. And now they're in it for money. And what a pity that becomes. In all times, including our times, there are imposters who've taken advantage of people in the name of God in order to pick their pockets. Beware. All of us need to beware. But we need to beware. Not all letters you receive in the mail from religious organizations are truthful. Not all radio ministries. Not all 
religious emails, not all websites are on the level. In fact, many are not. We get bombarded with these things. Why? Because there's money in it. There's a good profit in it. Countless false teachers are running around today, many of them on television. They prey on ignorant, well-meaning Christians, and especially the senior citizens who are very trusting and very trustworthy. And if it looks good, it must be. And they know exactly what buttons to push to get somebody to give not just a $10 donation, but in some cases a, a total life savings. We see a lot of it on television, and they still refer to them as televangelists. There was a John Oliver expose last year, and he says, televangelists, they're kind of like slinkies. How many of you know to what I'm referring when I say slinkies? How many of you have no idea what a slinky is? So we ask, is it happening today? That's what a slinky looks like. They're really neat. They can make their way down steps, and they can, they can do all kinds of nice things. Well, this is John Oliver's expose, televangelist. They're kind of like slinkies. Whenever you hear them mentioned, your first reaction is always, they still exist, and they do. But whereas a slinky is fairly harmless and shouldn't cost more than five bucks, a televangelist could cost you your life savings and call it a seed. You've probably seen them. This is your seed money. You put this in here and God will grow this and you will be fabulously rich before you know what to do. Oliver showed clips of televangelists from networks And I'm not suggesting that every show on all these networks is bad, but I'm suggesting we've got to beware, we've got to be very careful. But networks like Trinity, Daystar, and The Inspiration that have been seen, and really you kind of have to see some of these clips in order to believe them. They show Pastor Creflo Dollar, and they say happily named, Creflo Dollar asking for donations to buy a $65 million plane. And even more grossly, there's a pastor, Mike Murdoch, who openly boasts to his congregation of buying a jet, then buying another one three times its size and paying cash for it. You probably can't see, but these are televangelists who are very famous, who all have their own planes, and many of whom are... Uh, under investigation constantly by the authorities because of how lucrative the ministry can be for them. You've probably heard of Kenneth Copeland, Copeland Ministries. He and his wife are very involved. He flies around in a $17.5 million jet, lives in a $6 million lakefront mansion with a 1,500-acre campus and a private airstrip. He and his wife make over $655,000 a year in salary alone, and it's not clear whether this includes speaking fees, book royalties, and love offerings. Uh, Probably that figure gets way, way escalated beyond that. Back to Creflo Dollar for a minute. I love his name. That's why I want to get back to him. He's with World Changers Church International. 
drives a Rolls Royce, this happens to be it, lives in a million-dollar home in Atlanta and a $2.5 million apartment in Manhattan, he will not release his salary information. Um, And I don't wonder. Some of you may object when I put this picture up here and say, no, she's all right. This is Joyce Meyer. Joyce Meyer, if you listen to this, you can see her. She's very, very popular, has quite a following. She also has a real nice place in which she lives. Under the latest estimations, Joyce's net worth is as much as $25 million, but we'll see that that could be a very low figure. should be said that she is often criticized for leading a very affluent lifestyle. She doesn't see it as a problem. She doesn't see a problem buying corporate jet valued at $10 million or a boat valued at $105,000. Family calls it Patriot, by the way. Joyce Meyer thinks being a preacher doesn't mean you have to lead an ascetic lifestyle. She considers herself to be blessed, earning $3 million a year just from royalties of tapes and books sold at bookstores. Because of that, she can afford to spend $2 million on a house, then spend $5.7 million on furniture, artwork, glassware, and the latest equipment and machinery. She owns a headquarters valued at $20 million, so her estimated net worth is in all probability an understatement. There are false teachers running around all over the place. We need to beware. We need to be Bible savvy. We need to make sure that our leaders are into God's Word and understand what is going on. When we're looking to fill positions as pastors, when we're looking to fill positions on elders and trustees or deacons later on, uh, we've got to be very careful that they make a priority of God's Word. If you wanted to go on to any websites, all you have to do is, is Google false teachers. You will see lists of false teachers and their doctrines. But you've got to be careful there, too. You would be shocked at some of what I would consider to be very, very good people who appear on those lists. We've got to know who belongs and who doesn't belong on those lists. We've got to be very savvy to what goes on as truth. Because remember, people are rebelling against truth. We've got to know the difference. We've got to be smart scripturally. False teachers come in many more guises than televangelists. They're often much harder to spot. They seem very sincere. They've learned to scratch where people itch. But they have a couple things in common. They don't rightly divide the word of truth, and they get poor reviews from the fruit inspector. Do you know what I mean by that? By their fruit, you will know them. And when the ultimate fruit inspector does his job, they fall short because their actions don't match up to their words. Now we're told here in verses 12 through 14, we're getting back to the Cretans, leaving the televangelists alone for a while. But the Cretans must be sharply rebuked. The word there is apotomus, severely cutting. The heresy needed to be excised like a surgeon cutting away cancerous tissue. Now you'll notice in verse 13 it says, This testimony is true. The testimony that the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That's true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. But in verse 13, therefore rebuke them sharply. 
To whom does the then, them refer there? The Expositor's Bible Commentary puts it this way. Generally, them is taken as a direct reference to the false teachers, and obviously they need to be sharply rebuked. But it seems clear that the action demanded would also include those church members who are known to be receptive to the claims of the false teachers. Primary reference to the endangered church members seems clear from the contemplated results of the actions commanded. Rebuke them sharply. That's not just the teachers. That's the dupes. That's the people who take that all in, and to them it's okay. Sharply rebuked. All of us have to be careful. All of us have to be in God's Word. We can't depend on just a few people to do that. So what's going on here? What's going on here with the Cretans? It's very interesting to know the the full picture of what's going on, verses 12 through 14. The reputation of the people of Crete is infamous. And that reputation in verses 12 and 13 again, um, liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, and they're always that way. And this is a generalization, but it is a generalization that goes across the board, apparently. This is one of their own prophets has described them in very unflattering terms. Tactfully, Paul let him be the accuser. Paul says, one of your own prophets says this. Well, it happens to be true, but this is coming from your own prophet, not necessarily me. Most of the commentators believe that Epimenides is that prophet that is spoken of here. Epimenides, he reckoned by many, he was reckoned to be the seventh wisest man in Greece at a time before Christ. He was considered by his people to be a prophet. He was a poet also. And they say he lived to be 157 years old. That's older than some of you. Notice I'm getting tactful. I didn't mention any names. He's the one that made the claim that Cretans were always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons, and that caricature of them carried on for for centuries. In Paul's day, there was a word coined from the behavior of the Cretans. It was cretizo. It means to cretize, to act the Cretan, which meant to lie. It's like the Corinthians. That also became a term of contempt. To Corinthianize was to be immoral. Well, to Cretize was to be a liar. So to be a Cretan became synonymous with those who fled the truth. The rest of the world viewed Crete in that regard, partly because the Cretans claimed to have the tomb of Jupiter or Zeus on their island, which nobody else believed. Evil brutes here, that description meant that they were beasts or brutes of a ferocious or malignant kind. They were lacking in civilized manners. They were unrestrained in their indulgence of wild and ferocious passions. In other words, they were slobs and barbaric animals. The expression lazy gluttons seems to speak for itself. I'm not going to comment on that. But verse 13, this awful indictment, this testimony is true. An affirmation of the present truth of what Epimenides said a long time before. They needed the truth with no punches pulled. Rebuke them sharply. And they were vulnerable 
Remember again verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure, but this wasn't these people. To the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They needed to be jolted into breaking away from mistruth. Now, into this picture again, remember, we constantly want to bring this. Church leaders are fighters for truth, then and now. Even when the truth is not popular, and we've taken some unpopular stands in this church in recent years, we've taken some stands we believe for the truth of God's word that have been very unpopular with the culture, have been very unpopular even with some who have left our church because they think that we've uh, not accommodated in a loving enough manner some of the things that are going on in society today. But remember again, Titus 1.9. If you look back, the verse that Paul goes off on here with Titus, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That's Titus 1.9. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 and 16, it says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Beware of false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing. They're not pretending to be sheep. They're pretending to be shepherds. The shepherds used to clothe themselves in wool garments. So beware. It's all over. Our society is there. Our culture is there. We're bombarded by those who are rebellious against the truth. And they're trying to suck us into that. If you'll turn with me to Acts 20 for just a moment, please. Acts chapter 20. If you look with me at verse 28, this is that same Apostle Paul, this time to another group. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, talking to the Ephesian leaders here, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. In other words, I was not one of these who was in this for the dollar. I was not trying to pick your pocket. I was not trying to, to, to make myself rich at your expense. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you, 
that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. So turn with me to one other passage, Second Peter chapter 2. Second Peter chapter 2. If you'll look with me at the beginning of the chapter. Now this is Peter. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false prophets among you, or false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And... Notice again a common theme. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. A few verses over, verses 12 through 19. Verse 12, but these, and you'll notice a familiar theme once again, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. They are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Many, many passages tell us the same thing. We've got to be very, very careful of those who come in sheep's clothing, but they're wolves, they're false teachers, they're false prophets. And we've got to consider carefully our leadership and our followership as well. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Yes, doctrine is very important, and every one of us needs to be a student of God's Word. Every one of us needs to take every opportunity we can to make sure this is our priority. Otherwise, we're vulnerable. Otherwise, we're prey. We're dupes. We're waiting for somebody to come and pick our pocket, and worse, to damage whole families because of a distortion of the truth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Jesus warned us to beware of false prophets. They come in sheep's clothing. Inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. These false teachers don't bear the fruit of your spirit. They're walking according to the flesh. They're despising authority. They're bold. They're egotistical, given to greed, as we've read. They're ruled by their own desires. They exploit people by using deceptive words. Your word says 
these spiritual leaders are headed for destruction and they're going to take many unsuspecting and undiscerning people with them. May none of those people be us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.